Built Not Born, episode 49. I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Vikas Shaw. Vikas Shaw is an entrepreneur, investor, author, and philanthropist from Manchester, England. Vikas is the author of the long-form blog Thought Economics and has been interviewing Nobel Prize laureates, business leaders, billionaires, generals, special forces operators, politicians, and Olympians for the past 15 years. In 2021, Vikas released his book, Thought Economics, that featured key selections from all the great interviews he did. People such as Will I Am, Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Jocko Willink, Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, Usain Bolt, and even Buzz Aldrin. I was so excited to get Vikas on the show. He has such a brilliant mind, such a big thinker. Just love throwing ideas at him to get his perspective on the world and understand what he learned from speaking to the people that are creating the next century. It's a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy. And a quick shout out and thank you to Lisa Morton, the CEO of Roland Dransfield, the PR firm in Manchester, for connecting me with Vikas. I really appreciate it. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Vika Shaw, author of Thought Economics. And remember, life is built, not born. Vika Shaw, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Vikas, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? It's kind of a funny question because I always feel like of all the many questions I get asked in this world when somebody says to me, so what do you do for a living? It's like the hardest one because I'm like, well, which one do I start with? So... I split my life into three buckets. Bucket number one is my businesses. So I own a group of companies in Manchester and invest in some startups and do all that good capitalist nonsense. Bucket two is publishing. So I publish um, a journal called Thought Economics, where since so from since 2007, I've interviewed um, over 500 of the world's most interesting people like Nobel laureates, Maya Angelou, Buzz Aldrin, all sorts of people. And then the third bucket is philanthropy and civic work. We've helped to grow an NGO globally. We are involved with lots of charities and poverty alleviation and also in entrepreneurship development. But I think most importantly, I'm a cat dad. That goes without saying as being probably the single most rewarding and wonderful job that I have. You got so much going on. I want to cover your entrepreneur history, all the, the companies you started. Your publishing career fascinates me. Thought Economics, the book is so highly recommended. And your interviews from everything from Buzz Aldrin, Maya Angelou, Richard Branson, Will I Am, Mark Cuban, <laughs> even Usain Bolt, amazing people that you've interacted with. And then your philanthropy work, your NGO in Place of War. Want to try to cover and touch on all yeah. that. You go wherever you want to. Whatever you think is going to be most interesting for your audience, I'm happy to talk about. Just to give the audience a little feel for your background, let's start back all the way from the beginning. Yeah. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Manchester and I grew up initially in a place called Withenshaw in the south of Manchester, which is just kind of a rough place. It's not, you know, it's, it's still still a little bit sketchy. And then 
I, I went to school here. I, I accidentally started my first business when I was basically still a kid because I wanted to be a pilot. And that's really expensive. Like there was no way that was going to happen. You know, I wasn't going to join the Air Force because I've got glasses. And the only other route was basically to be very, very rich and go to flight school. So that was the time where I started basically building websites as a bit of a side hustle so I could pay for flying lessons. And that's what turned into a business when I was like, 13, 14 years old and really changed my life. And then since then, I've lived in various different places or in the States for a bit and London for a bit, and then eventually came back to Manchester. What was the draw to flying? What made you want to fly? It's going to sound really odd, but so I, I grew up basically by an airport and every day, you know, you grow up watching the planes go past and I, I don't know, there was something about them. I just felt so drawn to aviation and to these mechanical beasts that were just flying over us and everything about them was fascinating. Even when I was really young and kind of getting into technology a bit, I used to build these little airband radios so I could listen to what they were doing and what the air traffic control was saying. So even to this day, it's something which I'm utterly fascinated by. So even now at the ripe old age of 41, when I get on a plane, you know, I'm still the big kid trying to see everything and look inside the flight deck when it's open. It's, it's just, I just love it. I just love planes and aviation. So that led you to start building websites for people yeah. to earn money. And then it looked like you were, t- that little business took off <laughs> until the little dot-com bubble <laughs> happened. Did you walk us through oh, that? God. So, so, so we had like a phone book, we called it the Yellow Pages. And I used to just ring businesses and say, hey, I'll build you a website or I'll do some design work for you. And I used to charge 50 pounds per job. But my plan was really simple. Every two jobs I did pays for one flying lesson. I didn't realize we were kind of in the cusp of the dot-com bubble being created. So I also didn't realize that there weren't many people doing this. So I was like, web design agency like number three or four in the UK. So I'm 13, like six months into this, I've got like a cell phone the size of a brick in my school bag and I'm doing all these different jobs. A year later, I've now got full-time employees. You know, a couple of years later, I've now got employees in Manchester and London and New York and we're doing work for big companies. You know, by the time I'm 16, we've got major international clients. We're in software and infrastructure and it was crazy. It was unbelievably crazy. I, I've never in my life experienced anything like that since. It was the most rock and roll possible experience that I, I think I will probably ever have. So you're basically in school. Mm-hmm. You have the cell phone, like the old school cell phone that's like a cinder block. And you're going to school <laughs> while you're employing dozens of people in multiple countries with this yeah. business building websites. Yeah. And I, I tried my best not to tell anyone because I, I, not because I thought it was weird, but I just didn't. So I, I got really bullied at school and um, it was horrible. And, you know, I was really unpopular. I was basically a fat kid in a very academic school and it just, it just wasn't fun. And very weirdly, there was a part of me that was like, I've got this really amazing, successful life now outside school. And it was almost like a big screw you to the bullies that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Because almost it made them more of an idiot when they bully me now. And then I think there was like, so we learned to drive when we're 16 here. And so I remember coming into school and, you know, everyone else has like bought their cars for like a couple hundred pounds or whatever. And I come in this like brand new um, Toyota that I had and everyone was like, 
how'd this happen? And I was like, well, funny story. <laughs> it was a way almost, I didn't expect it to, but this whole, that, that whole journey was part of me kind of regaining my power and my mm. individuality after being you know, bullied so aggressively for so long. How are you bullied? What, what, like, what, what were the kids doing? So I, so the school that I went to was very academic and very sporty, and I was neither of those two things. You know, I was I was very average um, in 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 school academically, and I was quite large, and I wasn't very sporty. So so I was basically like cannon fodder. You know, every like most of the kids in my school were like you know either super clever or super sporty and came from rich families, and I, it just wasn't like that for me. So. Um, so they used to bully me about everything really. And, and it was harsh and I was kind of soft. So I didn't really fight back either. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's also never a good thing with bullies because when you don't fight back, you know, you, you just become like a stress toy for them. So, so it was hell. And I think, you know, even at the other young ages, I was contemplating all these kind of things like self-harm and it was horrid. And this is where this kind of unexpected turn in the journey in some ways was a way of me getting my life back. Wow. And then so at 14 or 16, so the dot-com mm. bubble happens. Walk us through that. So you're rocking and rolling, going to school, making money, driving the Toyota, yeah. proving <laughs> the bullies wrong. And then what happens during the dot-com bubble? What did you, how, how that unfold? So I didn't realize it was a bubble because we were more at the corporate end. So we we weren't doing the dot-com stuff of, you know, people who were building these incredible, like, you know, startups and getting crazy valuations. We were kind of at the business end of it. So we had like, you know, major corporate clients who we were doing, you know, digital transformation work and websites and software and that kind of stuff. But we just got more and more and more and more business and there was never any pushback on price. So we were like just quoting silly money and people were like, okay. And I was like, fine, this is good. So I think where it became apparent that we were in a bubble was kind of towards the end of the, of the dot-com boom, uh, the first one, not the current one, you started to see these companies that didn't really do anything who were achieving what were by then huge valuations, not by today's standards. And as somebody in technology, you were like, well, why? This this makes no sense. And we were getting phone call after phone call from VCs and people saying, hey, you know, what do you guys do? We've got money to invest. And it was really apparent that there was just money chasing an ideology. And that to me was worrying, even when I was quite young. And then the real turning point was, there was a big business that called WorldCom that went bust. And when WorldCom went bust, I think the equivalent would have been waking up tomorrow and Google's gone bust. And everyone was like, that's not good. And the internet was still in its infancy. So yes, there were still startups who were doing their thing and carrying on. But large corporations were phoning us up saying, well, you know, we tried it. That was a fad. We're just going to go back to the way things were. So so all of a sudden, overnight, you're losing a lot of your major clients. So it's very difficult to survive that. And it was incredibly quick when the bubble burst. Within weeks, you're now staring into the abyss. It was, it was crazy. What was your next move from there? How'd you pivot? So I, I basically sold the bits of the business I could as fast as I could to pay for the bits I couldn't, right? So because my, my, my thought was, I'm still very early in career. And I didn't want to leave a bad taste in people's mouths. So I wanted to kind of get out as clean as I could. 
looking back, the sensible thing would have been to take a bit of time out and figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was getting, you know, phone calls from investment banks and people saying, hey, you know, what, what are you wanting to do? And uh, there was a very odd chance conversation with my dad. And he's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And he go, and he he was trying to trading fabrics at the time. And he said, well, whatever you do, don't get involved in textiles. It sucks. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Why would you say that? So I basically kind of bought the family business off them. Um, so they could kind of poodle off and retire. And I turned that into a bit of a challenge to see, well, what can I do in this odd industry that I know nothing about? And that was how I made the pivot. I, I'd love to say there was a plan. I'd love to say there was some big grand intellectual narrative of observing the horizon and navel gazing and understanding things, but there wasn't. It was a chance conversation that got me interested and interested enough to do something about it. And, and that's really the fundamental of how I made the pivot. And it seems to be, in my experience, how lots of people make important pivots in life is, mm. is, is by decisions or conversations that happen by pure chance. Yeah. So much of life is random. It's so random. And completely. Um, I always laugh a little bit when if you work for a big company, here's our five-year plan. Like, yeah. You don't know what's going to happen five days from now. No one knew COVID was happening five days before it happened. Exactly. And you have these five-year plans. And it's almost like that one old time saying it's man plans, God laughs. And yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, just so much of it is just random, circumstantial, where yeah. you are, the economy at the moment. I think some of the most important and interesting things in life happen by chance. Mm-hmm. And you know, if I look back on some of the most amazing things that have happened to me career-wise or opportunity-wise, there's, there's not been a plan. My interviews website was never in the plan. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this stuff's happened by pure chance. Yeah. yeah I want to pivot right there. I'm doing some research for this in- interview, Thought Economics, the books on Amazon, 14 years of you interviewing yeah. Nobel Prize winners, a long-form blog, people you've interviewed, Buzz Aldrin, Richard Branson, Maya Angelou, Will I Am, Usain Bolt, Mark Cuban. How'd that, first off, how'd that start? And then how did you get those names? Yeah. My goodness. So, so I always describe thought economics as a hobby that went horribly rogue. And <laughs> in back in 2007, the whole publishing industry was changing. So you know, you were going from having these wonderful long form interviews in the New York Times and Guardian and places. And, and naturally, the business model changed. They had to become much more editorialized, much more infographic, short form, social content, things like this. And that wasn't the, the style of content I enjoyed. So I set up this little blog on Blogger. So that was, it was initially thoughteconomics.blogspot.com. And, and I just thought there must be other people that, that like reading these interviews. And over the years, I'd been really lucky and I'd met some interesting people at conferences that I'd spoken at. And so I just reached out to people and said, hey, you know, let's have a conversation and I'm going to publish it on here and see what happens. And there was bits of traffic that came through. And then one day I was like, well, you know, who are, and I was initially just writing about like literally business and economics. And I just thought there's, there's such a big world out there. I, I, I need to write about more than this. And I ended up getting in touch with Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia. And he gave me a shot and he was like, sure, let's do something. This would be fun. And then we did an interview, the traffic skyrocketed. And I was like, this is great fun. I really enjoyed it. I I loved that conversation. And then I was like, well, who else can I get to? And then six months later, I'm on the phone to Buzz Aldrin, right? So 
there wasn't many people doing interviews then. Mm-hmm. It was kind of new and it was kind of unique. You know, now yeah. it's it's a bit different, but there was this whole thing for me, which is everything in our world is shaped by the people that have made that decision. So there's people who are creatives or sports people or political leaders, whoever it is, everything that we know of as our world has been shaped by people with the exception of our geography, let's say. And I wanted to capture the people who have shaped the century to be the world that we live in now mm-hmm. and the people who are shaping the world that we're going to be going into. Who are they? What makes them tick? And just with each of them, grab an hour on the phone with them, get to know them and, and just share their views No, mm-hmm. for free, no subscriptions, no nothing. And I think at the last count, I've interviewed about 512, I think, as of last week, people over the years. And the reason the site is called Thought Economics is because we came out of this industrial era where machinery was the power of creation to this era where actually ideas are the power of creation. And those ideas are in everything. They're in our politics, in our business, in our creativity, everything. So we're now in the economy of thought. So that's where the name came from. Yeah. Wow. So you're saying Jimmy Wells of Wikipedia, was that your first big get? Uh, big guest. He he was number one. He he oh. was my first big name. Before then, there was lots of people who were still very successful in their careers and who'd achieved great things. But he was the first kind of big name where everyone was like, "That's cool." Yeah. So, and then I, I try and balance it because th- there's lots of people in the world who are doing incredible things that, that no one's heard of, mm-hmm. and and so as much as there's the ego value of, of speaking to amazing famous people. And that's great. And I'm not going to lie. You do get an ego buzz out of speaking to some you know, famous person, but I also want to make sure that I get the voices out of people who are doing amazing things who aren't necessarily household names either, like the scientists and the academics and mm-hmm. those people too. Run a few names down here that you interviewed. Tell me the lesson you learned from them or what they taught you in that conversation. Let's start off with sure. uh, Buzz Aldrin. Maybe the second person to step on the moon, yeah. Neil Armstrong. Tell us about astronaut Buzz Aldrin. So he was kind of fun because I, I had this inner child that just wanted to ask him the very obvious questions like, well, you know, how was it on the moon and what was it like? And then he gave me a real reality check, which is we turn these people into heroes, but they were doing a job. Like I remember asking him at the time, so you know, how, what were your thoughts when you first, when you, when, you, when you got onto the moon and then when you returned? And he was like, well, to be honest, we were really busy. And it wasn't that he shot down the question. He told the truth. And I was like, wow. And that was quite a seminal moment for me because we have this tendency to hero worship. And I get why. These are people that are doing incredible things. But then you realize that for many people, this is just their job. He Mm. was doing his job. And at the time, you're doing your job and that job might be to do something amazing. You're not thinking about the consequences. You're there to do something. Mm -hmm. Wow. Moving on. How about Maya Angelou? What did you learn from her? So she was just the most gentle, considered, philosophical mind. And I think for her, the the thing that I really learned was whatever the question was that I asked, the answer related to beauty. One of the questions I asked her was, so so why do we write? And, and what's the importance of writing? And she goes, we write because we can. We write for the same reason we climb mountains. And you're just like, wow, if somebody asks me a question, I'd almost sometimes feel ashamed about 
making an answer that speaks to aesthetics or beauty, but actually so much of what we do as humans is about beauty and finding beauty. So I think with her as someone who's achieved so much in in civil rights and in, and in the political space as well, the fact that she was still so anchored around this notion of beauty was truly inspiring. That's great. How about- and also with her, I'll tell you just a funny anecdote. So one of the ways I get people onto the interview is basically just by hassling their publicists until they give in. Okay. And uh, with Maya Angelou, I was emailing their publicists time and time again. And eventually they were like, look, we'll give you 10 minutes. Will you please stop emailing us? And I was like, yes, absolutely. And then 10 minutes of the call goes. And then the publicist says, actually 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And I hope you enjoyed that. And, Miss, and Maya Angelou was like, we're having a great time. Let's just carry on. And I ended awesome. up on the phone with her for an hour. And he's just like, I, I, I can't to this day with thought economics. I often slap myself. I can't believe I get to do this. Wow. That is awesome. Isn't that a great feeling when they say 10 minutes and it goes to a half hour to an hour? <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing. I've never spoke to a guest of Buzz Aldrin or Maya Angelou's level, but there are a few guests that say, I'll come on your show, but I only have 20 minutes. I'm like, absolutely. And I'll interview them. And at the 20 minute mark, I'm like, hey, we're 20 minutes ago. Let's keep going. And you feel like you had to earn that. And you felt like it makes you feel good. Hey. I earned that extra 40 minutes to make it an yeah. episode, right? That's pretty cool. That's How exactly about, right. Here's one of my favorite characters in the business world, Richard Branson. Tell us about Oh, him. he was Such great. A Such a character. So, so, so Richard Branson kind of speaks in media-friendly sound bites, right? It's not his first radio. And I think the thing that I found interesting with him was challenging expectations, challenging my own expectations, because as a business owner, you always assume that everyone else does it for a different reason sometimes. So you look at someone like a Richard Branson and you go, you know, he must do it for the money. He's got so much money, blah, 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 blah. And then you speak to him and you ask him, so what does wealth mean to you? And he says, well, yeah, it improves the aesthetic of your life, but what really motivates me is ideas. And here, the funny thing is, I would read that in an interview with him, let's say, and I wouldn't believe it because I'd be like, oh, of course you're going to say that because why wouldn't you? But then the weird thing is when you're there doing the call and you've got him at the end of the line and he says that, you're like, I actually really believe it. I mm-hmm. actually completely think he's telling telling his truth. Yeah. And so that was, again, really inspiring when you suddenly realized that. Yeah. It really is about ideas. And he's had the luck and the good fortune to make the kind of money he has. But for him, the journey is the same as it is for the rest of us. And that was really beautiful because it makes you feel like he's one of your peers in a way, even though he's clearly not, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. And I remember how he started Virgin Airlines. There was a plane delay and he rented his own plane. He had a sign 80 bucks to wherever they were yeah. going. He filled the plane. He said motivated by ideas. After you have so much money, you couldn't spend it in 20 lifetimes. I don't think the money motivates you anymore after a while. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been kind of consistent, actually, believe it or not, with so many people that I've spoken to, where when we come to that question of wealth, some people are almost borderline embarrassed about it. Mm -hmm. Some people feel that the wealth is a huge burden because it, it, it can be a burden on their next generation. It can be a burden... For them to know, well, what do I do with it? Because I feel like I ought to do something with it. So, but for many of them, they had that conviction that I just want to do something. And it just so happened that something they did made money. So I've interviewed like 
maybe a hundred of these kind of world-class entrepreneurs and it's been really consistent across all of them. Yeah. And that, I genuinely was surprised by that. You mentioned something a few minutes ago where the burden of wealth and you're like, you got to be crazy. How is that a burden of whatever, how many billions Richard's worth? But there's a great quote by John Adams, uh, the second president of the United States. He said, my generation has to study war. So the next yeah. generation can study science and math. Then yeah. the generation after that studies art and philosophy. And then as you go, then it, it, there's a chance it gets softer and softer. Like that one generation is grizzled, like uh, yeah. war tested, battle hardened. And then as each generation, you move away from that, what got you there, then you get soft, you lose your way a little yeah. bit. You're not as tough. You don't even mentally tough, maybe physically not exactly. as tough. It's, it's a wild game that money plays to the mind. How but there's also, but there's also, I think, there's also, I think, the burden of power. Okay. So you see this manifesting sometimes when you have unearned power, where you have that kind of the, the trust fund crowd. And I've yet to meet many people who are, let's say, the extremely wealthy children of extremely wealthy people who, whose lives have turned out to be particularly, you know, good. I think a lot of them will burn out or, or just, you know, because they haven't got anything to be hungry for in some ways. Yep. There are obviously exceptions to that. So I think for a lot of people, when they've made that, you know, game incredible international level wealth, what do we do? Because we don't want to harm our kids. And what's it doing just sat in the bank? Like, what am I going to do with it? So you end up with this really odd situation where you have to do something with it to feel at peace with having made it. Some of the people that I've interviewed went from nothing to being billionaires in a few years in technology. And there's also the reality that shouldn't happen. You know, what just happened? Why do I have this now? I need to do something with it. So that that relationship with wealth, I think is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. A couple more guests I want to touch on. How about Will I Am? Love that guy, man. <laughs> Basically one of, the like, coolest, one of the coolest dudes walking the planet. Genuinely, I think probably one of, if not the coolest person I've ever interviewed. And he is such a brilliant intellect because I think, one of the kind of really consistent things about brilliant people is they can join the dots that seem obvious when they tell you, but no one else can see them. And Will I Am's like that. Like he, he, he just sees the patterns of where culture's going and somehow makes it happen. And he does it so effortlessly that the rest of us go, but of course. And, and I remember asking him at the end, right at the end of the interview, I said, so Will, like, what would be your main tip in terms of achieving success, especially in really hyper-competitive industries like you have. And he said to me, and you have to excuse my language here, but he goes, the world's full of bullshit. You're going to face bullshit everywhere. People will give you bullshit. If you want to be successful, you've got to take bullshit and turn it into fertilizer. And I just thought, this is amazing. So with Will, it was getting past the fact that he's obviously just a very cool person and a celebrity, but he is such a deep thinker. And that came across through the whole conversation. Wow, that's cool. Not, not surprising he operates at that level. Um, and he's so creative. He's from his music to the he's brilliant. he's in. He's like, absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, he, he does everything, which is so cool. Another billionaire that, that has a huge personality and he's just great on TV, Mark Cuban. What'd you learn Mark, from him? So Mark Cuban was incredible. And he was incredible because he was so generous with his time and with his energy. 
normally when you try and get a hold of these people, it goes through the press office and, and all this. I remember sending an email out to his, to his somebody on his team and they replied and copied him in. And I was like, really? And then he's straight over. I was like, oh, hey, this sounds great. This sounds fun. Let's do it. And then I remember after the interview saying, would you like to check through the interview before it's published? He's like, yeah, sure. I'll take a look. And he sends it back with lots of additional bits and edits and then st- stayed in touch afterwards. And Again, this is one thing that I found really soul-affirming in the whole journey of thought economics is you're talking to people who genuinely are the busiest people on the planet. All of the people that I've interviewed could spend their entire lives doing interviews and never never do enough interviews. And yet they were generous enough to give me, as a non-journalist with a blog, some of their time. And I know it sounds really, really odd, that to me was almost maybe that's them paying it forward a bit because I don't I don't deserve to be at the table. I'm not a journalist. I'm not from a major newspaper or anything like that. I've had international journalists email me and go, how on earth did you interview them? Because I've been trying and I can't. And that's the thing, like these people that I'm interviewing in some ways maybe are paying it forward a bit in their minds and say, I want to give this independent a chance. So I think that's a really big lesson because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't add to their personal brand incrementally, yeah. but they're still willing to do it because it's an important thing to do because maybe at some point in their life, somebody gave them that chance. Sure. Like pay it forward. That's great. How about Usain Bolt, the Olympic sprinter? He looks like a <laughs> real character. <laughs> oh, he's cool. And whilst it might sound really cliche, the interview was really quick. <laughs> it's just, he, he's fun. Like, so I find sports people really fun because I, like they come from a whole, they come from a completely different world to me. My my background's always been in business, and so when I speak to people in sports and arts, it's a very different environment. What constitutes leadership and resilience and all those things is is very very unique. And this is why I actually love speaking to people in sports and in the military, because I think for us in the middle, we can learn a lot from the extreme environments. When I think about what when I was doing a big piece on leadership. Most of the people I interviewed were generals and admirals and people who'd served in the military. When I talk about performance, I thought, okay, well, let's go and talk to sports people like Usain Bolt and Manny Pacquiao and people like this, because they are at the extreme of human performance mm-hmm. or human resilience or human endurance. And the thing that I found really inspiring was the matter of factness of how they described that. Mm-hmm. When I say, so how do you achieve this? And the answer is, well, you just keep trying and you just keep improving a little bit every day. And it sounds really dumb, doesn't it? Like if I said that to you, if you said to me, if we were sat having a drink and you said, I wonder how Usain Bolt gets got so good at what he did. And if I turned around to you and said, well, he just improves a little bit every day, you'd be like, oh, shut up. Like that's stupid. But then when Usain Bolt tells you that that's what he does, you're like, okay, well, maybe I can improve a little bit every day. And so, so understanding how people who are at the real extremes of human experience live their lives and do what they do, we can all take something from that. At the end, they're all people. And there's a lesson yeah. you could tease out of what they did, even though they're in another stratosphere, either money-wise or fame-wise, there's principles that you could tease out and make your own and put yeah. it in your own life. To synthesize real quick, so Buzz Aldrin, what you learn from him, just do your job. Like yeah. Maya Angelou, the, the natural just appreciating beauty. beauty. Yeah. yeah. So appreciating the beauty of everyday life and do things because we can. She writes yeah. because she can. 
Richard Branson, motivated by ideas, find what motivates yeah. you and go follow your ideas. Will I am turn BS into fertilizer, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I would legitimately get that as a tattoo. I mean, it was yeah. amazing. So cool. Mark Cuban, just be relatable and pay it forward, man. You know, yeah, just... completely. And then Usain Bolt, just keep improving, improve a bit each day. Every day. Yeah. Fantastic. That's just great advice. How about with all your interviews on thought economics, who was the most interesting non-famous person you ever interviewed? Any interviews stand out? So I did a series of interviews around war and conflict because it's an area that I'm interested in through our NGA work. And I did a series of interviews with Holocaust survivors because when they had, so obviously we have commemorations to World War II most years here in the UK and in Europe. And it was, it's such a big part of history and in a really profound way. And I I remember a couple of years ago, I was like, probably three or four years ago, I was like, well, we're probably the only generation in Europe that's grown up without seeing war on our shores. And the, the individuals who went through it aren't going to be with us that long. So I need to speak to them. And I ended up speaking to four Holocaust survivors. And they're not people who are household names. They're not people who you'd recognize going down the street, but they're people who have lived through some of the most tragic, evil events that have ever happened in the history of humanity. And and so, for example, there's one of them called Ibi Nil who survived Auschwitz. And amongst many things we spoke of, I spoke about her feelings towards her captors and said, so what did you think of those guards? And she said, as much as you obviously hated what they were doing, you realize that at the end of the day, they were doing their jobs. And, and I said, well, do you forgive them? And she said, well, that they were doing what they felt they ought to be doing. They were doing their jobs and it was evil. And in retrospect, they probably wish they hadn't, but at the time, you know, what, what can you do? And and it was one of those really bizarre moments where you can't be the same person after having that conversation. You know, I can't, like, how could I possibly bear a grudge or have any hate towards anyone in this life when someone like Ibi Nil is able to forgive the captors that she had at Auschwitz? And that was quite a consistent theme across the Holocaust survivors that I spoke to. And I said to her, well, what's your biggest worry for today? And she said, it's young people. She goes, they're so full of hate. Mm-hmm. And we see that today, don't we? We see that with cancel culture. We see that with so many things where hate has become a commodity again. And that is worrying. If someone that survived Auschwitz is like, that person is doing their job. And that just blows you away. That level of that mindset of that inner tranquility and strength she must have to be able to say that, that is just unbelievable. It, it's like Marcus Aurelius, the mm-hmm. Roman emperor wrote in meditations, somebody did something that got him mad and he wrote in meditations, uh, the best revenge is don't be that way. Don't yeah. be that. Yeah. Just don't just let it go. Just don't be like them. And that's the best revenge. And that's yeah. so hard to do. So easy to say, but man, it just gives you such peace when you can think at that level of clarity. Wow. Yeah. And it, and I'm sure at the time that wasn't the case. Like when you're in that situation, it's different. Mm-hmm. But the fact that somebody is able to come out of a situation like that and feel that sense of forgiveness, I mean, I mean that's remarkable. And then I'll give you an example. So 
if that wasn't remarkable enough, we through, through one of our NGOs, we were on a project in, in Uganda and Uganda only came out of civil war like nine, 10 years ago. And we were on a farm and there was a lady on the farm who'd lost her family in the war. And there were some young men working on her fields. And I said, so, so, who, so who are they? You know, are they your sons? You know, who are they? And she said, well, no, they were, they were former rebels. And I said, so those young men on the fields could have killed your sons. And she said, well, yes, but the war's over now and everyone deserves a chance. Wow. And this is it. You know, that's real. That, that, that's real tough stuff to take on board when you're in the conversation. Wow. That level of inner strength and peace yeah. that they must have, knowing that those rebels probably, if not killed their family, killed their friends or killed people yeah, in their village. exactly right. And that, that is absolutely amazing. When you hear stuff like that, how, how does that change you? Like when you hear all these amazing perspectives of the world, what's it feel like when you hear that for the first time? Well, you can't help but be changed by wisdom. Yeah. You know, this is where historically every culture in the world had a concept of a guru in, in different forms, whether it was in Renaissance Italy, where they had the artists and the philosophers. It's, there's always been the sense that wisdom is important for you as a traveler on this journey. And so I guess for me, it's really been, been really an honor to be able to get wisdom from these people to better understand the world. Like, you know, if I get curious about a subject, I can find who is the world's expert in that subject and go interview them mm-hmm. and learn and learn, you know, real truth within our conversation. So every conversation you learn something and every conversation you're changed and every conversation you learn more about how to have a conversation too, because that is also, I think, one of the, one of the skills that we're losing. The conversation you mentioned a few moments ago about what's real popular today, like the cancel culture. If you're, if there's a speaker coming to your college for commencement, they said something you didn't like, or they worked for a president you didn't believe in. You just want them to go away, not speak. Like there's no exchange of ideas. I don't agree with the person in this subject. Maybe you could find some common ground in another part of life. There's no meeting someone halfway. Like it, it's not a good thing where you're just canceling people. If someone doesn't agree with your view on guns or abortion or something like that, and you just totally cancel them, even though they probably could teach you something in another aspect of life, right? This is exactly right. Yeah, and it's 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 dangerous because it's if we look back at major conflicts in history, conflicts didn't start with a bomb dropping. They started with a slow ebbing breakdown of civil society. Mm. And that slow ebbing breakdown of civil society was usually anchored around removing humanity from each other. And that's been almost inarguably true of most global conflicts. So even in today's conflict in Russia and Ukraine, you see the Russian propaganda where Ukrainians were almost borderline labeled as a group, as terrorists, as Nazis, as Nazi sympathizers, and so they're dehumanized. So, and we see that in Western civilization too, where all you have to do is say you vote Republican and everyone goes, oh, well, that means you support Nazis. It's really, it's really dangerous because this is how conflicts start. And we can sit here and go, that's just, you're just being overly throwing hyperbole out there, but that's not true. This is how conflict starts. This is at the the root of, of pretty much every conflict that's happened in history. 
the ideology hardens and how like you don't open your mind to new information, new ideas, new, at least other ways of potential ways of thinking. Like we spoke a few moments ago about the cancel culture. To me, that's like the modern day version. I remember taking a tour when I was in Florence years ago, the bonfire of the vanities, they just burn books. Like you don't agree with a certain book, put all the books in the middle of the piazza and light them on fire because we're not allowed to think differently. If anyone has a, a, a thought that's different than ours, it's just burn all the books or yeah. ban the books. or and, and that's, that's, yeah, it's crazy. And that's been a mode of control, hasn't it? So yeah. if we look at how, you know, whether it was the kings and queens of different royal families with different civilizations or imperialism, where different countries went and made their claims on different parts of the world, you know, Britain was particularly guilty of that. But I think most countries have had some imperialism in their history. One of the ways they did that was by denying the intrinsic knowledge of the indigenous people they went to. So they said, well, actually, our truth is now the truth. Mm-hmm. Your truth is no longer valid. And so they engaged in things like book burning and calling out things as heresy or, you know, it was it's historically been a, a medium of control. And you get that now. Like, I'll give you an example. So, so here in the UK, the, the Guardian newspaper would be the equivalent of the New York Times politically, and the Daily Mail would be the equivalent of Fox politically. Sure. And I'll read both because I want to see both sides. And mm-hmm. if I talk to friends of mine who are, let's say, very left-leaning, and I say, I read the Daily Mail, and this is what I saw, they'd be like, why would you read that? And the pro- this is the point. They're denying that there's truth there. And and the problem is, even if you vehemently disagree with someone's perspective, there is some truth there. Mm. There is some truth in what they say. There is some truth which is relevant to them and their group. And it would help you to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the States here, there's the two networks that are probably the most polar opposite. There's uh, MSNBC and there's Fox News. And I have friends and family that just all MSNBC, on another side, all Fox and the Fox people think MSNBC is total lies and garbage. And then the MSNBC people <laughs> think Fox is total lies and garbage. But they each think yeah. they're getting the real news. And the other side is complete fabrication. They have no idea, like, the, the version that they're drinking is just as biased as the other side. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. And, and this is where, you know, part of the thing for me, and it's not just with, with thought economics, but you can do the same with podcasts. You can do the same with anything. Is You've got to bring alive that other perspective. You've, you've got to hear the individuals who you would consider the other. And it is really uncomfortable because if you're listening to a podcast where they're interviewing someone who you really dislike, I'll give you an example. So in the UK, there's a character called Tommy Robinson who founded the English Defence League, and he's widely considered to be someone who incites violence and someone who may be racist. And and this is what I'm not saying this is what he is. I'm saying this is what people have said about him. And he's someone who I would personally not necessarily get on with, let's say. But I will still, and I have listened to podcasts and interviews that he's done, because guess what? There's some truth in that. You realise that he is giving voice to tens of thousands of people who've been disaffected because of the decline of industrialization and a huge amounts of the population have been excluded and there's no jobs in certain areas. And so I, I, they have every right to be angry. And he is one of many manifestations of that anger. Mm-hmm. And I probably wouldn't have been able to get that, to that conclusion had I not listened to him. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep your mind open, mm-hmm. eyes open and minds open. The two Absolutely. They open. That is fantastic. Before we move on to the last part of the interview, tell us a little bit about your In Place of War, your NGO that you founded. You mentioned that. Yeah. So, so I went to a lecture about 15 years ago at the University of Manchester, just by pure chance. It was an open lecture where the professor was talking about art in conflict zones. And he asked this question to the audience, which is, why do people make art when the bombs are dropping? And I'm sat there going, never really thought of that, but it's a really good question. And then he talks about how he'd spent almost a decade of his life exploring this and researching it. And it was life-changing listening to that lecture. And I remember after the lecture, I wrote to him and I said, your work's incredible. But I think it's too good to just be research. Let's do something. So we helped with some seed funding and helped to explore what that structure could be. And then a few years later, we're we're kind of really motoring. And we said, let's turn this into a charity. And then fast forward 12 years from that, in place of war is now in 32 countries. We have offices in the UK, Ireland and, and the US. You know, We're impacting millions of people every year. And what we do is we use art as the primary tool to do peace building and, and, and you know, reconciliation in places of conflict. And then we follow that with interventions using entrepreneurship and creative arts and, and all sorts of things. But at the heart of it is the arts in all their forms. That's great. Now, how do you make art when the bomb falls? I mean, that's sometimes where the greatest art's made. Even like the Renaissance, you mentioned a few moments ago, that was such chaotic times. The Renaissance and maybe the greatest art ever that came out during that period. It's, it's, well, art, uh, art, answers the, art answers the questions where words fail you, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's things you can achieve. So if I can give you an example. So again, if I go back to Uganda, just because it was in my mind, if I go back to Uganda in the north of Uganda, it's kind of remote on the border with South Sudan. And we did a project using this, this theatre technique called Forum Theatre, where audience members can come into the theatre production and act out certain scenes at different points. And it makes it very interactive. Um, and it's based in research. And lots of NGOs had said, oh, there's this discrimination against disabled people in, in Uganda. And we went in and said, well, is that true? Is that really the case? And as it turns out, that's not true. The lack of engagement that disabled people felt with society was not because of discrimination. It was because Uganda had only had hospitals in the north relatively recently, but there were still lots of landmines. And so Typically, if you got injured by a landmine, you wouldn't survive. And it was only in recent years that they had disabled people who had been able to survive their injuries. And society didn't have an institutional memory as to what does that mean? So through theatre techniques, you were able to get communities having that conversation in a safe way and moving forward. So this is where the arts have huge power. And one of my missions through this is to give arts the same equity of consideration and philanthropy as any other mode of development. I want to shift gears a little bit here to be respectful of your time to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets, just so our guests can get to know you a little bit better. In some of your writing, you mentioned everyone has a failure. Everyone has failed at some point. I saw that in an interview that you did. Can you think back of a failure? that set you most up for future success? Do you have a favorite failure? I mean, God, there's been so many. Like, it's difficult to know where to start, really. I think one of the big failures for me was not having my mental health in check. And, you know, I went through a period in life where, like, in one year, I had four suicide attempts and one got very close. And I would consider that a failure of taking accountability for my own mental health, right? But 
the recovery process taught me more about myself than I would ever have. The recovery process taught me more about emotional intelligence, about psychology, about how people tick. It was is remarkable how those skills then empower you in so many aspects of your life. So that was one area where I failed in my own duty to myself, but it started a process of discovery that's ongoing. And that's really, I think, changed my life for the better. How did you know your mental health was slipping? Like, what did you notice? Like, what did you feel? So it was a huge anxiety, massive. Really? And that then became depressive episodes. And there was a point. So, so, you know, we all find coping mechanisms, right? But there comes a point at which it's almost the coil breaks and you, you realize I just can't cope now. It's too much. It's overwhelming. And I think the difference is a lot of people that I know are just very high functioning depressives or high functioning anxiety sufferers. I think, you know, a lot of us are a little bit broken, but there comes a point where it's too much to cope. And that's when, you know, you need to do well, you ought to do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about now? Like with all the stuff you have going on, like when you need to like clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? So I discipline is really important. So every morning I, I you know, wake up nice and early. I train every day and I, I don't touch this little electronic yeah. drug device, the mobile phone <laughs> until, I, until I've completed all that. And, and that gives, and it means I've got some protected time in the day. I'll try and yeah. go home at a reasonable time. I'll try and protect my weekends. It's, it's all, it's all hard. It's yeah. really hard. I'll try to not have the phone in the bedroom. It's really, really like a lot of it sounds really dumb, but it's really hard to really make that a discipline. And that's the stuff which helps you build resilience. Yeah. But one of the things my wife and I, and this sounds so, this just sounds like we're in fifth grade, but one thing my wife and I just started doing is we don't touch our phone like for the first 40 minutes or 45 minutes each day. Like when we wake up, we don't look at our phone till like almost like an hour later. And it's been life-changing. Like it, it's amazing. You don't start your day with texts or drama or you see a crazy headline or stock exactly. market crashed or you don't start, you don't start with it's going to rain and the stock market just crashed. And your whole mindset's different than if you wake up and you start talking to your kids or you read something positive. See, or, yeah. This is exactly right. And yeah. but a lot of these things sound obvious, but they're disciplines. Mm-hmm. And they only make a difference when they become a habit and you do it regularly, you know. Not reading your phone in the morning for a couple of days isn't going to make much difference. But once you've done that for a few months, yeah, you, you'll notice a huge difference. You know, trade exercising in the morning a couple of times a week now and again. Who cares? It does nothing. Mm-hmm. But turn that into a discipline where you're doing that for months, and you'll notice the difference in your in your mental, physical health, everything. So discipline is really key for that. It, discipline, this habit. You got to form the right habit. You got to create the right habit and make it your own. Like become a slave exactly to that right. good habit, right? Uh, how about with uh, everything you got going on now? If you look out to the rest of 2022, what's uh, the most exciting project you're working on now? So I'm excited about the paperback of the book coming out because it's updated. There's a lot more interviews in it. So that's going to be fun in place of wars growing. So listen, this is going to sound really odd, but I, I don't set goals. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that I'm roughly pointing in the right direction. Yep. And that to me is enough. So if I know that the decisions I'm making are pointing in the direction of my values, then I know that interesting things will happen. And 
life's never ceased to amaze me like that. Lots of bad things happen in life and that's the same for everyone. But if I know I'm pointing in the right direction, I know good things will happen. I know that my life will be interesting and fulfilled and and half the excitement is not knowing what form that excitement and fulfillment will take. Are you familiar with the author James Clear? He wrote Atomic Habits. Yes. Yes, book, yes. So killer. In that book, he meant, he basically it's right out of that book. He's like don't set goals, just put good systems in place. And those nice. good systems will take you so much further than any goal you think you can set. Let's say uh you want to uh, make this up, you want to write a book. And you I want to write one book. But if you say I'm going to write 500 words a day and you write 500 yeah. words a day for 3 years, you might write four books. Whatever goal you put on the wall, the good system yeah. and habit will destroy any goal you could think of. Because so Exactly. Away. So here's a fun one. So it's so obviously yeah. with Thought Economics, yeah. all the interviews. So the interview excerpts that are in the book aren't on the website anymore, naturally, because you know publishers don't like that kind of thing. But then I did a bit of a word count and I was like, okay, well, how much is left? Is it going to destroy my website? Well, check this. There's 1.8 million words left on the website after the book. Wow. Now, if somebody had sat me down in 2007 and said, hey, I want you to write 1.8 million <laughs> words, I would have told them to stop licking those hallucinogenic frogs. But then guess what? You do an interview every month. You do a couple of interviews every month. You keep going, you keep going. And then lo and behold, you got it. So that's so, so right. Wow. That's, that's awesome. If you could have everyone listening, take away one lesson or one idea from this whole conversation, what would you want to leave them with? This is going to sound really cliched, but I've, I've kind of lived it. And I just want people to really internalize the fact that I know too many brilliant people who never did something because they felt they couldn't, or they felt they might not succeed and they were too scared. And I just feel like if people take one lesson from my odd life, it would be just try you know, if you feel like there's something in life you need to do, if you feel like there's a job you are here to do, or that you have something to say or something to build or something to show, just do it. You have to. It's your duty to do things that are of value to the world because that's how society moves forward. And yes, very few, if any of us will ever be, you know, Jeff Bezos rich or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It's the collective action of all of us as humanity that makes humanity work. Yeah. It's your duty. Almost when you hold back, you're cheating. You know, you're, you're playing yeah. small and you're actually I, not just hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. That can I genuinely feel like that. Two more questions. Be respectful of your time. Yeah, just yeah. two more questions. Uh, these are kind of fun ones. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. If you could spend a day with any historical figure, business leader, alive or dead, who would it be? Da Vinci. Yeah. Okay. Without a shadow of a doubt, Leonardo da Vinci, because he just sounds like probably the most interesting mind that's that's lived. So I would yeah. I would certainly want to spend time with him. What a genius! The crazy thing. I mean, think exactly. of the helicopter five hundred years before it happened, and just just to be around that time yeah. of intellectual discovery and exploration, I think would be remarkable. That is such a great one. Thanks for sharing that. Last question: If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, <laughs> what would that quote or motto say? 
Ah, do you know, it's really fun because I don't have any ink, but I would love some ink. And I always think about this and I always think about, well, what would it be? And there's one word that keeps coming to mind, which is rebel or rebel, not in the kind of militarized sense of the word, but in the sense that so much of what I've done in life, people said I couldn't. And so much of what I do in life, I have no business doing with my background or anything like this. So I guess it makes me a bit of a rebel in some ways. So maybe that would be the word. Rebel or rebel. That is awesome. I think that is about as good of a spot to end as any. Vika Shaw, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank for you for having us. me. This has been such good fun. Thank you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing the conversation when it's live. I just, I love what you're doing. Thank you. Good luck with Thought Economics, the next edition coming out. When will the paperback be ready? So the paperback is coming out in June and it's got some new interviews with Shaquille O'Neal, Matthew McConaughey, and some really fun people in there. And that's available on Amazon, anywhere books are sold. Absolutely. Available all over the world. I am in, in various I languages. No, so get stuck in. Good luck with that. Keep going. Keep doing great work. And I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate your interest. Have a great evening.